Welcome to this week's sermon podcast from Hawkwood Baptist Church in Calgary, Alberta. You can find out more about our church at hawkwood.ca. Now, here is Pastor Schaefer Parker with this week's message. Now, I want to recap, like I say from last Sunday, by reminding you of what the covenant of creation is. In the covenant of creation, the Creator God graciously established a relationship between Himself and our forefather, Adam. In revealing his covenantal relationship to Adam, God made it clear that all of Adam's descendants were included in the covenant. And you may say, well, how do we know that? Well, among other things, one of his descendants, the first, was his own wife, Eve, who came out of Adam, who was made out of Adam. Uh, God established the covenant with Adam before Eve was created, and yet she is clearly, from chapter 3, in the covenant and has covenant responsibilities before God, as does Adam, and so it's very clear from that that so would all their offspring and so forth. Now, uh, this is a kind of an aside, and yet it's not an aside. It's actually at the heart of the, the text that we're reading today. It's from the creation covenant that we proclaim the universality and the exclusivity of the Christian faith. Now, probably there are no two concepts that are more, um, that, that create more anger and, 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 and rejection from the world than those two. Universality. Ours is the one true faith. Exclusivity. Ours is the only true faith. You see the difference, right? But you see that they're related. Universality. The faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the only true faith in the world. Exclusivity. There is no other faith in the world that brings salvation, that brings knowledge of God. And so we establish these two concepts, universality and exclusivity, from the covenant of creation. How does that work? Well, think about it like this. Every human being is a descendant of Adam. Thus, every human being is under the stipulations of the covenant of creation. And let me also remind you of something else, and that is, as we move next week into the covenant that God made with Noah, and later with Abraham, and then with the Israelites at Mount Sinai, with David, uh, later on, uh, King David, and finally the new covenant that he establishes in the New, in the new Testament with, through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we move through these, you need to understand that these do not abrogate the previous covenants. Abrogation, you know, where the new law eliminates the old law, that's abrogation. No, the new covenants, the, the succeeding covenants do not eliminate the previous covenants. They enhance them, they modify them, but they incorporate them at the same time. It's very important that we see this. And so, we need to understand then that every human being is a descendant of Adam and thus every human being is under the stipulations of the covenant of creation. And thinking only of that covenant for a moment, I can say to you that it is enhanced and it is modified by succeeding covenants. And we'll mention that when we get there. But it is never contradicted by succeeding covenants and it is never canceled. All of us are born bearing the covenant responsibilities that adhere to the covenant of creation. We need to keep that in our minds. Now, I know I'm getting ahead of the story just a little bit, but when Adam sinned, he brought death upon all human beings. And if you want to make sure that that's a New Testament truth, just remember that the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 12, 13, and 14, the Apostle Paul says that it is easily proved that Adam's sin brings death upon all human beings simply by observing that everybody dies, even those who've never committed a sin. 
And those who've never committed a sin like Adam's sin, still death came to Adam and Eve spiritually. Death came to Adam and Eve physically when they ate the forbidden fruit. Death came to the universe, according to Romans chapter 8, when they ate the forbidden fruit. There had been no death before Adam's sin in the universe. Not a single animal had died, not a single fish in the sea, not a single bird in the air. There had been no death before Adam ate the forbidden fruit. And so Paul says you can prove then that we are under that covenant simply by the fact that everybody dies. Little babies haven't even sinned at all, and yet they die. They're under the curse of Adam. And of course, we've not, none of us have been to the Garden of Eden. None of us have eaten the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and yet we die like Adam. Therefore, we know that the guilt of Adam's sin is attributed to all of his heirs. Thus, the problem, and God help us to see this, the problem the human race faces is not first that, uh, that everybody sins. That's not our first problem. It, it, don't misunderstand me. It, it's... It's an insurmountable problem, apart from God's help, but it's not our first problem. Our first problem is that all of us die. And again, we raise the question, how can that be unless everyone is heir to the guilt of Adam's sin? Thus, the world is reminded every time we see someone die that we need a Savior. Every time we see someone die, the world is reminded, you are reminded, I'm reminded, that we need a Savior. The, the evil of sin is forcibly impressed upon our minds when we see people die. Not because we're looking at someone who in themselves is such a great sinner. Actually, quite frankly, oftentimes we come to a funeral service and we're in front of the remains, whether it's an actual body or or, or whether it's uh, some other in ashes or whatever, but we're confronted with the remains of one of the great saints of God. And yet even the great saints die. And it reminds us then of just what a great evil sin is. Because Adam sinned and death passed to all men. And the world needs a universal savior he has to be a son of Adam so that he can represent all of us who are from Adam. But then he also has to be a son of God, the son of God, so that he can lift us into God's life. And that's why we say Jesus alone is the Savior of the world. That's why the early apostles preached there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And God, help us to stand with the, the apostles. I hear a lot about apostolic faith these days, and a lot of it is an exaggeration and an abomination, quite frankly. But if we want to be truly apostolic, we stand with Peter, and we stand with John and the other apostles, and we declare to the world there is no other name beside the name of Jesus whereby we must be saved. Now, the covenant of creation, like all the covenants, is a test of faith. I've mentioned this in previous weeks, but I want to expand on it this morning. We are challenged, dear friends, to believe what God says about creation, or not. When we talk about a covenant of creation, we're looking at God's description of creation in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We're challenged to believe it or not. Now, today's world, as I've already mentioned to you, brings massive pressure on each of us not to believe the Bible. And you know what? Sadly, way too many Christians decide that's okay. As long as I believe the Gospels, as long as I believe most of the New Testament, as long as I take seriously maybe the praises in the Psalms and some of the warnings in the, in the, uh, the prophets, but I don't have to believe everything. I don't have to believe Revelation. I don't have to believe Genesis. Not exactly, anyway. Not exactly. 
Here's the problem, I think, too many Christians slip into unbelief without even realizing that it's happening because there are at least two ways to disbelieve the Bible. The first way, of course, is to go with Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawking and that crowd and just openly say, I'm an atheist. I don't believe Genesis. I think Genesis is wrong. I think Genesis is primitive and stupid and we should ignore all that Genesis says about where the universe comes from and the creation of life or the beginning of life and all those things. You can go with Hawking and Dawkins and Hitchens and the rest of that crowd if you want. But there's another way to express unbelief and it's the one way too many Christians adopt. And, and so let's be careful. Hear me carefully and hear me with your heart is wide open before the Lord you know, to say, oh Lord, is it me who's standing in the need of prayer? Because the other way to disbelieve is to simply pretend that the Bible agrees with the ideas these men support. Oh, I believe in God, but I also believe in uniformitarianism. You know what uniformitarianism is? It's the doctrine that all of the universe came to exist by following precisely the same laws and behaviors that we see in the universe today. As it is today, so it has been forever in the past and will be forever in the future. That's uniformitarianism, and it can be applied to astronomy, it can be applied to geology, it can be applied to all of the earth and universal sciences. And we can also say, I believe in God and I also believe in evolution. You know, God is there, and he, maybe he started it, but that's the way he did it. So I don't disagree with Hawkins. I don't disagree with Dawkins. I, I don't, I, you know, I, I, I agree with all these guys. But I'm still a Christian, not a biblical Christian. That's the point you have to understand. Not a biblical Christian. Not a biblical Christian. This, I believe, is a form of unbelief. We are basically saying that God did not know what he was talking about. I will speak to this more, uh, more, at more at greater length in future Sundays, but we need to understand that all of those unique features of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 were affirmed by our Lord Jesus Christ. You can't believe in Jesus and deny what Genesis 1 says, and also by the apostles and so forth. And then last week, I spoke to you as well that as a son to his father, Adam was to imitate God in four ways, and so are you and I. And I just list them for you before rapidly moving on to the last thing I want to speak to you about this morning. But uh, that we are to imitate God in his creative power through our procreation and through his, by, from his work by our vocation and his dominion by our dominion over the earth. It is a stewardship over the earth. And finally, in the way that we worship on the seventh day or the first day of the week, every seven days. And we went to some length to explain all those last Sunday. So if you want to find the notes on the internet, you can do that on our church website. Now let me finish today, although I don't mean in the next minute, so just, just buckle in. You don't have to go far. You're not going to have to go home and start lunch. It's all started already, as we well know. So we're okay for that. But I do want to finish by talking to you about how two trees focused Adam's obedience within the creation covenant. And you'll remember from Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Notice there's no uh, prohibition against touching. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now let's break this down in just a few ways here. And I want to speak to you first about God's generous provision. That is to say, with one exception, Adam was free to eat from every tree in the garden. 
And let's just think about that for a moment. God's generous provision. Try to imagine, putting it in modern terms, for example, that you were invited to someone's home and you found on their, on their countertop every kind of delicious food in the world. And uh, for, the, for carnivores like myself, there would be you know, new, several different kinds of steak laid out. And, uh, and then there would be some, you know, several kinds of chicken and then there'd be several kinds of sausages and then there'd be you know, all that sort of thing. Seafood, I mean, you know, if, yeah. oh, it is getting close to lunch, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, anyway. Let's suppose that it's all laid out. And, and amongst all that meat, you know, you'd have a New York strip steak and a sirloin steak and a T-bone steak and a filet mignon and, uh, you know, and on and on. Prime rib is lying there. I mean, everything is there. And, and, and your host says to you, take your choice. You can have as much of all of this as you want except, sorry, no New York strip. That's the one, for whatever reason, I just have chosen not to make that one available. And, well, you must not be much of a host if I can't have the New York strip. And the rest of us are like, what? You can have all this other stuff. It's all great. It's just that one thing. Who knows why he said don't eat that one? Who knows? Who cares? He knows what he's doing, and he's hosting us, and it's all free to us. And so let's rejoice in what's available rather than resenting this one little thing. But isn't that a perfect picture of what was laid out for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? You can have all the fruit, including the tree of life. But there's this one tree I'm asking you not to eat. And yet they began to dislike God for what he was doing there. They began to resent. I don't know why that word wouldn't come. They began to resent God for what he was doing in their lives. So the first thing we need to understand then is that God generously provides for us. And to apply that to your life and mine right now, let us say to ourselves right this moment, my heavenly Father is watching over me. He is generously providing for me now. I have no right to resent my station in life. I must begin to count my blessings. I must begin to name them one by one. I must try to teach myself to be constantly surprised at all the wonderful things our Lord has done for me. So so we need to understand then that just as in the Garden of Eden, even today, God generously provides for his people. And we go around and we say, well, I can't have this and I can't have that. And God didn't make such and such available to me. That is always wrong. We need to see it as part of the resentment that led to the fall of man in the first place. Of course, multiplied many times over by the fact that we're all born with a fallen nature. Then secondly, God's gracious enhancement. He's already given everything. But in addition to all the other trees, he's made the tree of life available to Adam and his family. And when I say made available, I mean concretely available. If you read Genesis 3, God actually has to take precautions even after the fall to prevent them from eating uh, from the tree of life because it was still available to them then. If it was available to them at the end of chapter 3, you know it was available to them before the end of chapter 3. And then notice God's sovereign restriction where he says, don't eat fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want to remind you again, because this is part of what we learn when we study the covenants. God always sets the standards for his relationships with men. And it's always at this point that man falls. We always resent whatever standards God sets. We resent them, and we resist them, and we push back against them. And yet there is never any guilt with God. I want to say that again. We're always trying to make God guilty for something that happened in our lives, in our friends' lives, in our church life, in our national life. We're always trying to make God guilty for what's going on in the world. 
There is never any guilt with God. He sets the stipulations. Man fails him. God never fails us. God help us to remember that. God never fails us. What we need to keep in mind is who God is and who we are. He's the creator. We're the created. Let me remind you of Isaiah 29, 16, where the prophet says, you have turned things around as if the potter were the same as the clay. How can what is made, this is still Isaiah 29, how can what is made say about its maker, he didn't make me? How can what is formed say about the one who formed it, he doesn't understand what he's doing? By illustration, we've been children and we've looked at our adult parents and said they don't understand what they're doing. And now that many of us have become parents, we remember when our own children looked at us and said, my parents don't understand what they're doing. And then they went out and did something crazy just to show that they understood life better than the parents. Or I went out and did something crazy just to show that I understood life better than my parents. And in every case, it turned out <laughs> they were right and I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, different story. But you know what we're trying to get at here. We constantly try to turn things upside down. And just as children try to turn the authority structure upside down and take charge over the parents, it is the temptation to all men to turn things upside down and take authority over God and tell him what he needs to be doing for us. God help us. This sovereign restriction that he put upon Adam and Eve in the garden was not unfair, was entirely appropriate, even if we don't fully understand it. What child fully understands life? And the same is true to this day. And then, notice as well, God's solemn warning. If you eat from the forbidden tree, you will die. Remember, I've said this before, it needs to be said over and over until it just sinks so deeply into our understanding we can't forget it. All of God's covenants are matters of life and death, including the new covenant. Yet for all of God's generosity and clarity, Adam and Eve were not satisfied. They disobeyed God. And is this not always the way of man? God graciously provides life and joy beyond measure, and still we complain, and still we disobey. And just as Adam and Eve ate and died spiritually, I remind you of a phrase that I've tried to introduce in the last few weeks, a gospel fear of God. The good news is that God loves us, but he loves us in such a way that it, his, his love humbles us and first teaches us to fear him and to desire to obey him. But we need to remember that even the forbidden tree communicated God's grace. I love what Greg Nichols, a, a biblical scholar, says about these two trees. He says, the proximity of these two trees portrays the proximity between obedience and life. There's always a close connection between obedience and life. And there's an in, inseparable connection between obedience and faith, by the way. But just think about it for a moment. Adam and Eve were free to eat of the tree of life and live. They were also told that if they obediently refused to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would live. So this connection between obedience and life is possibly the most universal truth in the universe. I think it's as universal as E equals MC squared or as universal as gravity. Here it is. Throughout time and in every place, obedience to God always brings a reward and a blessing. Disobedience, on the other hand, always brings death. And so we need to remember then that obedience is always a test of faith. We are challenged to believe that God is good and that all his promises are designed not just to bless us, but to bless us in the greatest way possible. 
Not only are his promises designed to bless us in the greatest way possible, so are his restrictions and restraints. They are designed to bless us in the greatest way possible as well. Yet we doubt. We doubt, we doubt God. We doubt that his promises will bless us, and we doubt that his curses will kill us. We're like foolish children refusing to put on sunscreen because we've never experienced sunburn. And look, we say to our parents, here we are running around in the sun. Nothing's happening. We're immune to sunburn. Now, you know that that's true for about 30 minutes or less. We're critical of children who doubt and disobey their parents simply because they can't understand. But we do the same with God. Just as Adam and Eve doubted God partly because they had no experience with death, and they had not, so we doubt God because we think at age 5 or 15 or 25 or 55 or even 75, somehow we find ourselves thinking that we understand the universe better than he does. And so I say obedience is a test of faith. If we believe God, we will obey. Obedience is also a test of our relationship. Remember, if Adam had remembered that God was his father and then reminded himself that no loving father would ever impose upon his life anything evil, he would perhaps have refused to eat the forbidden fruit. How many times as children have we got up, been upset with our parents? We think our parents are just bad people. They're trying to get me to do bad things. And yet, you know that's not true. I mean, there are exceptions to the rule, and we all hear about them in the newspapers, but you know what I'm talking about. As a general rule, parents love their children and do not try to make them do bad things. But all children figure out somewhere along the way that they've been unfairly treated by their parents. I was about 11 years old. I distinctly remember the house we were living in at the time, so I can tell you with some assurance that I was about 11 years old when one day I had had it with my parents. I mean, had it. I went in my bedroom. I found a handful of things that were particularly precious to me. I dumped them into a pillowcase, and I, I'm serious about this. I, I'm not telling you, I'm telling you an absolutely true story. I dumped those things in a pillowcase and tied that pillowcase on the end of a stick and put it on my shoulder, and I headed away from home, and it was my determination as I left the yard that I would never come back home until my parents were well and truly sorry that they had mistreated their son the way I had been treated. And that lasted for about six blocks, and then I got hungry. And, um, <laughs> and back home I came. Actually, I was back home and got my stuff back out on the shelf and whatnot so quickly my parents didn't even know how that I had been gone. And, and, but I'm telling you that to say that obedience is a test of relationship. When God asks us to do things we don't understand, things we don't want to do, will we do them anyway? because we understand that God is our Father and he loves us. Let's not forget that Jesus called upon his Father at the greatest moment of trial in his life. As his flesh shrank from the suffering that he was about to undergo on the cross, what did he cry? Every now and then, I'm just so struck by, by the things that are just so clearly the leadership of God. How could George know, George Bears, as he prayed earlier, and referred to Abba, Father, that I'd be preaching about this this morning. I don't think he could have known that, and yet that's what I wanted to preach about, that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane cried out, Abba, Daddy, Father, let this cup pass from me. That's Mark 14, 36. Remember then that it was his love for his Father that sustained our Lord in his greatest temptation to doubt the goodness of God. Remember, that's what sustained him. 
Now, it's interesting, the Bible says that it was because of the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross and despised its shame. But where did that joy come from? From the promises his father had laid out for him back in Isaiah chapter 53. He will see his seed, referring to the Messiah, whom Jesus understood that was him. Um, He will see his seed. He will prolong his days. Therefore, I will give him the portion, the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil because he submitted himself to death. And so Jesus had read this, and Jesus understood this was God's promise to him. And Jesus is looking forward then to this glorious result from his suffering and death. And it's that joy on the other side of the cross as he believed his father's promises that sustained him during the time of trial as he shrank from having to undergo the suffering on the cross. And so it's by the new birth, dear friends, that we are given the Holy Spirit to assure us of our relationship with God. Do you have that assurance? Does the Holy Spirit speak to your heart day by day? You belong to God. He's your Father in heaven in a very direct and personal way. Through His Son, Jesus Christ, God is your Father in heaven, and you need to You need to do all you can to enhance your understanding of your relationship with him as father and child, father and son, father and daughter. Remember what Paul writes in Romans 8, all those led by God's spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The same term of endearment that Jesus expressed in the moment of his greatest trial in the Garden of Gethsemane, in our times of trial, we too can cry out, Abba, Father. We've been given the spirit of adoption. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children and of children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. And just as Jesus, God's Son, the second person in the Trinity, just as Jesus was willing to suffer because of his love for his Father, God help us then in our understanding of our relationship with God as Father to recognize that the sufferings that come into our lives are designed as they were for Jesus to teach us obedience, to teach us discernment between good and evil, to reverse the effects of the the false eating of the tree of the knowledge of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we understand then that because we've been born again, we have the Spirit of God within us. We're being made new under uh, like the image of Christ. And to imitate Jesus then, when trials come, we obey. And so obedience then becomes a test of relationship. And lastly, and I really do mean lastly now, obedience is the only way to learn righteousness. And that's why the second tree was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When Adam ate from that forbidden tree, he learned about good, but only by choosing evil. But God had intended that he learn about good and and evil by choosing the good. It would have been a whole different kind of learning. God had trusted him to enter joyfully into the spiritual exercises that would produce a soul capable of moral discernment so that Adam could exercise wise and just dominion over the earth. Would you bow your heads, please? We're going to take about a minute now. I'll ask our musicians to come, our our worship leaders to come, and be prepared in just a moment. We're going to take about a minute for silent reflection and meditation. And if I could encourage you to do one thing, I would encourage you to use this moment to seal in your life that God is your heavenly Father through faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe for the first time, but perhaps you need to reseal this thought. You need to say, God, I know that you're my Father. 
I know that you're a sovereign and divine God and you have nothing but good intentions toward me and ultimate, ultimate blessing toward me. Help me to be like your son. Help me to cling to the promises and keep my mind focused on the joy that is set before me so that I can endure my own cross and despise whatever shame comes into my life and live for you faithfully through this world so that I can reign with you on high someday. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Hawkwood Baptist Church in Calgary, Alberta. We want to be a blessing to our community. So please contact us with any questions or prayer requests that you have by calling the church at 403-239-6200 or through our website at www.hawkwood.ca. You can find us on Facebook by searching for Hawkwood Baptist Church. We are on Twitter at Hawkwood Baptist. The sermon podcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud by searching for Hawkwood Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. May God bless you this week.